Suddenly, he wiped his mouth. Beaudry, top of the freeway, huh? Want to drive? Getting out and heading for the passenger side before Milo could answer. Milo said, either way, just to hear the sound of his own voice. Even away from the wheel, Schwinn went through his jumpy pre-drive ritual, ratcheting the seat back noisily, then returning it to where it had been, checking the knot of his tie in the rear view, poking around at the corner of his lipless mouth, making sure no cherry-colored residue of decongestant syrup remained. Forty-eight years old, but his hair was dead white and skimpy, thinning to skin at the crown. Five-ten, and Milo figured him for no more than one-forty, most of it gristle. He had a lantern jaw, that stingy little paper cut of a mouth, deep seams scoring his raw-boned face, and heavy bags under intelligent, suspicious eyes. The package shouted Dust Bowl. Schwinn had been born in Tulsa, labeled himself ultra-oaky to Milo minutes after they'd met. Then he'd paused and looked the young detective in the eye, expecting Milo to say something about his own heritage. How about black Irish Indiana fag? Milo said, like the Steinbeck book. Yeah, said Schwinn, disappointed. Grapes of Wrath. Ever read it? Sure. I didn't. Defiant tone. Why the fuck should I? Everything in there I already learned from my daddy's stories. Schwinn's mouth formed a poor excuse for a smile. I hate books. Hate TV and stupid-ass radio, too pausing as if laying down a gauntlet. Milo kept quiet. Schwinn frowned. Hate sports, too. What's the point of all that? Yeah, it can get excessive. You've got the size. Play sports in college? High school football, said Milo. Not good enough for college? Not nearly. You read much? A bit, said Milo. Why did that sound confessional? Me, too. Schwinn put his palms together, aimed those accusatory eyes at Milo, leaving Milo no choice. You hate books, but you read. Magazines, said Schwinn triumphantly. Magazines cut to the chase. Take your reader's digest, collects all the bullshit and condenses it to where you don't need a shave by the time you finish. The other one I like is Smithsonian. Now there was a surprise. Smithsonian, said Milo. Never heard of it? said Schwinn, as if relishing a secret. The museum in Washington, they put out a magazine. My wife went and subscribed to it, and I was ready to kick her butt, just what we needed, more paper cluttering up the house. But it's not half bad. They've got all sorts of stuff in there. I feel educated when I close the covers, know what I mean? Sure. Now you, said Schwinn, they tell me you are educated, making it sound like a criminal charge. Got yourself a master's degree, is that right? Milo nodded. From where? Indiana U. But school isn't necessarily education. Yeah, but sometimes it is. What'd you study at Indiana U? English? Schwinn laughed. <laughs> God loves me. Sent me a partner who can spell. Anyway, give me magazines and burn all the books as far as I'm concerned. I like science. Sometimes when I'm at the morgue, I look at medical books, forensic medicine, abnormal psychology, even anthropology, because they're learning to do stuff with bones. His own bony finger wagged. Let me tell you something, boyo. One day science is going to be a big damn deal in our business. 
One day, to be doing our job, a guy's going to have to be a scientist. Show up at a crime scene, scrape the DB, carry a little microscope, learn the biochemical makeup of every damn scrot the Vic hung out with for the last ten years. Transfer evidence, Milo said. You think it'll get that good? Sure, yeah, Schwinn said impatiently. Right now, transfer evidence is for the most part useless bullshit. But wait and see. They had been driving around Central on their first day as partners. Aimlessly, Milo thought. He kept waiting for Schwinn to point out known felons, hot spots, whatever. But the guy seemed unaware of his surroundings. All he wanted to do was talk. Later, Milo would learn that Schwinn had plenty to offer. Solid detective logic and basic advice. Carry your own camera, gloves, and fingerprint powder. Take care of your own self. Don't depend on anyone. But right now, this first day, riding around, everything seemed pointless. Transfer, said Schwinn. All we can transfer now is ABO blood type. What a crock. Big deal, a million scrotes are type O. Most of the rest are A, so what does that do? That and hair, sometimes they take hair, put it in little plastic envelopes. What the fuck can they do with it? You always get some heeb lawyer proving hair don't mean shit. Now, I'm talking serious science. Something nuclear, like the way they date fossils. Carbon dating. One day, we'll be anthropologists. Too bad you don't have a master's degree in anthropology. Can you type okay? A few miles later, Milo was taking in the neighborhood on his own, studying faces, places, when Schwinn proclaimed, English won't do you a damn bit of good, boyo, because our customers don't talk e mucho English. Not the Mexes, not the niggers either. Not unless you want to call that jive if they give you English. Milo kept his mouth shut. Screw English, said Schwinn. Fuck English in the ass with a hydrochloric acid dildo. The wave of the future is science. They hadn't been told much about the Baudry call. Female Caucasian DB discovered by a trash picker sifting through the brush that crested the freeway on-ramp. Rain had fallen the previous night, and the dirt upon which the corpse had been placed was poor drainage clay that retained an inch of grimy water in the ruts. Despite a nice soft muddy area, no tire tracks, no footprints. The rag picker was an old black guy named Elmer Jaquette, tall, emaciated, stooped, with Parkinsonian tremors in his hands that fit with his agitation as he retold the story to anyone who'd listen. And there it was, right out there, Lord Jesus! No one was listening anymore. Uniforms and crime scene personnel and the coroner's man were busy doing their jobs. Lots of other people stood around making small talk. Flashing vehicles blocked Baudry all the way back to Temple as a bored-looking patrolman detoured would-be freeway speeders. Not too many cars out, 9 p.m., well past rush hour. Rigor had come and gone, as had the beginnings of putrefaction. The coroner was guesstimating a half day to a day since death, but no way to know how long the body had been lying there or what temperature it had been stored at. The logical guess was that the killer had driven up last night after dark, placed the corpse, zipped right onto the 101, and sped off happy. No passing motorist had seen it, because when you were in a hurry, why would you study the dirt above the on-ramp? You never get to know a city unless you walk. Which is why so few people know L.A., thought Milo. After living here for two years, he still felt like a stranger. Elmer Jaquette walked all the time, 
because he had no car. Covered the area from his East Hollywood flop to the western borders of downtown, poking around for cans, bottles, discards he tried to peddle to thrift shops in return for soup kitchen vouchers. One time he'd found a working watch, gold, he thought, Turned out to be plated, but he got ten bucks for it anyway at a pawn shop on South Vermont. He'd seen the body right away. How could you not, from up close, all pale in the moonlight, the sour smell, the way the poor girl's legs had been bent and spread, and his gorge had risen immediately, and soon his Franks and Beans dinner was coming back the wrong way. Jackhead had the good sense to run a good fifteen feet from the body before vomiting. When the uniforms arrived, he pointed out the emetic mound, apologizing, not wanting to annoy anyone. He was sixty-eight years old, hadn't served state time since fifteen years ago, wasn't going to annoy the police, no way. Yes, sir. No, sir. They'd kept him around, waiting for the detectives to arrive. Now the men in suits were finally here, and Jaquette stood over by one of the police cars as someone pointed him out, and they approached him, stepping into the glare of those harsh lights the cops had put all over the place. Two suits, a skinny white-haired redneck type in an old-fashioned gray shark-skin suit, and a dark-haired, pasty-faced, heavyset kid whose green jacket and brown pants and ugly red-brown tie made Elmer wonder if nowadays cops were shopping at thrift shops. They stopped at the body first. The old one took one look, wrinkled his nose, got an annoyed look on his face, like he'd been interrupted in the middle of doing something important. The fat kid was something else. Barely glanced at the body before whipping his head away. Bad skin, that one, and he'd gone white as a sheet, started rubbing his face with one hand, over and over, tightening up that big heavy body of his like he was ready to lose his lunch. Elmer wondered how long the kid had been on the job, if he'd actually blow chunks. If the kid did heave, would he be smart enough to avoid the body, like Elmer had? Because this kid didn't look like no veteran. Chapter 6 This was worse than Asia. No matter how brutal it got, war was impersonal. Human chess pieces moving around the board. You fired at shadows, strafed huts you pretended were empty. Lived every day hoping you wouldn't be the pawn that flipped. Reduce someone to the enemy, and you could blow off his legs or slice open his belly or napalm his kids without knowing his name. As bad as war got, there was always the chance for making nice sometime in the future. Look at Germany and the rest of Europe. To his father, an Omaha Beach alumnus, Buddying up to the Krauts was an abomination. Dad curled his lip every time he saw a hippie faggot in one of those Hitler Beetle cars. But Milo knew enough history to understand that peace was as inevitable as war, and that as unlikely as it seemed, one day Americans might be vacationing in Hanoi. War wounds had a chance of healing because they weren't personal. Not that the memory of guts slipping through his hands would fade— but maybe somewhere off in the future. But this, this was nothing but personal. Reduction of human form to meat and juice and refuse, creating the anti-person. He took a deep breath and buttoned his jacket and managed another look at the corpse. How old could she be? Seventeen? Eighteen? The hands, about the only parts of her not bloody, were smooth, pale, free of blemish, 
long, tapering fingers, pink-polished nails. From what he could tell, and it was hard to tell anything because of the damage, she'd had delicate features, might have been pretty. No blood on the hands, no defense wounds. The girl was frozen in time, a heap of ruin, aborted like a shiny little wristwatch, stomped on, the crystal shattered. Manipulated after death, too, the killer spreading her legs, tenting them, pointing the feet at a slight outward angle, leaving her out in the open, horrible statuary. Overkill, the assistant coroner had pronounced, as if you needed a medical degree for that. Schwinn had told Milo to count wounds, but the task wasn't that simple. The slashes and cuts were straightforward, but did he count the ligature burns around both wrists and ankles as wounds? And what about the deep, angry red trench around her neck? Schwinn had gone off to get his instamatic, always a shutterbug, and Milo didn't want to ask him, loathed coming across uncertain, the rookie he was. He decided to include the ligatures in a separate column, continued making hash marks reviewed his count of the knife wounds. Both pre-mortem and after death, the coroner was guessing. One, two, three, four. He confirmed fifty-six, began his tally of the cigarette burns. Inflammation around the singed circles said the burns had been inflicted before death. Very little spent blood at the scene. She'd been killed somewhere else, left here. But lots of dried blood atop the head, forming a blackening cap that kept attracting the flies. The finishing touch, scalping her. Should that be counted as one giant wound? Or did he need to peer under the blood, see how many times the killer had hacked away the skin? A cloud of night gnats circled above the body, and Milo scattered it away, noted removal of cranial skin as a separate item, drawing the body and topping it with the cap his lousy rendering making the blood look like a beanie, so inadequately offensive. He frowned, closed his pad, stepped back, studied the body from a new perspective, fought back yet another wave of nausea. The old black guy who'd found her had heaved his cookies. From the moment Milo had seen the girl, he'd struggled not to do the same, tightening his bowels and his gut, trying to come up with a mantra that would do the trick. You're no virgin. You've seen worse. Thinking of the worst. Melon-sized holes in chests. Hearts bursting. That kid, that Indian kid from New Mexico. Bradley Two Wolves, who'd stepped on a mine and lost everything below the navel, but was still talking as Milo pretended to do something for him. Looking up at Milo with soft brown eyes. Alive eyes, dear God. Talking calmly having a goddamn conversation with nothing left 